Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm walking here. I'm Evan. <laughs> Boy, you had that one in the chamber. I didn't. I that was, I just dreamed that, that up. Beautiful. That's just pure improv magic on podcast. I'm Ian. <laughs> uh, also walking here is Daniel Arnold, a photographer that I'm sure you are familiar with if you know anything about street photography in New York City. And even if you don't, I mean, you're... You're photographing everybody and all the time, everywhere, it seems. Yeah, I've gotten pointed in a lot of directions, for sure. I'm sorry to interrupt right away, but were you with Andre 3000 just today, like a few hours ago? I was. Hell yeah. It was incredible. That's sick. And for context, I mean, <clears throat> to brace myself to be with you guys, I've just been listening to New York on a loop. And so I walked around all day kind of mired in this like disillusionment and it's 420 and the scene here is like it's easy to slip into just kind of like shaking your head at how despicable it all is even if you're having a great time and so i had this very kind of like outside of myself uh analytical observer day and then in the last block of my walk where i go every day it's it's right before i get to the lab where nothing ever happens like if I get to that point and my my role isn't done, I just start taking pictures of myself. <laughs> On that block, I see from half a block away, fucking Andre three thousand just pacing around by himself playing his giant wooden flute. God damn, playing like, flute on yeah, the street. Yes, just wow. by himself. Only in New York, folks. And so I angle toward him, and he, you know, obviously feels a coming and turns away. So I go around and stand right in front of him. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, man, but that flute's really calling my name. <laughs> and I lift the camera to take a picture and he puts his hand in front of his face. God help me. I hope that picture comes out. But he, <laughs> says, he says, no, not unless you're in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh. Like, I'm not a guy. I've never asked uh, someone to take a selfie with me ever. Um, but it was his idea. And he really, he made my month with that one. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Um, when I was living in New York, I I was aware of it, and I actually would see you around just like from a distance sometimes, peering, when I was... peering through the bushes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I recognize you small on the screen from far, far away. <laughs> yeah, I, if I stood further back, then then yeah. it'd, it'd be really striking. Yeah. Um, but I've always really felt sort of a kindred uh, uh, spirit of of walking guy. Uh, with you basically spent 90% of my time that I lived in New York walking around. Yeah. And uh, you have an excuse, but I, I didn't, I didn't always have an excuse. I mean, I always did it too. I, I was here 
a good 10 years before anybody cared that I took pictures. Mm. Uh, and from day one, it was always kind of like my go-to default recreation. And I'm, I'm 20 years into it now and I'm, I'm not bored. I'm not tired of it. It's crazy. It's just like constantly refreshing itself and stays interesting. It's miraculous. Well, the city is constantly uh, refreshing itself and staying interesting. So yep. Yeah, one, one could say that New York City is like a character in your photograph. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, I do want to, I mean, how long have you been a New Yorker? And what's your relationship with specifically photography in New York? Uh, have you, how have you seen things change? How have you changed in your feelings about it? And just the city itself. I mean, what do you think? Uh, it's been 20 years, which is crazy. Uh, I moved here when I was 23, a nervous little Midwestern child. And now I'm a grizzled 43 year old <laughs> guy. Um, and I mean, like I said, I did 10 years. I, I worked as a writer for 10 years and uh, never meant to, I never aspired to to work as a photographer mm. um, and never thought anybody would know or care that, that I was an obsessive one, um, which was just, I mean, just kind of a natural reaction to the city. I think, especially as an outsider that, um, I mean, I don't know, you walk around all day and, and if you're paying any attention, there's just one thing after another that you want to take home with you. Um, and so, very, very soon after moving here, I just started carrying a camera with me all the time. Um, and, you know, for a long time, it was the wrong camera. For a long time, I I didn't kind of have the, the courage or the vision to work on the street the way that I, I wanted to. Um, but it was always it was always kind of like my. I don't know, a, a helper in navigating the city as a kind of uh, alienated outsider. Um, it was a reason to go into rooms that intimidated me and an excuse not to have anybody to talk to. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I guess the way things have changed photographically, um, I mean, I'm, I'm more aware of that as it relates to me than anything else. Um, I think that this big wave of of instagram and i don't know i don't want to give myself too much credit but i am my own kind of main point of reference and i i have noticed in this very classic new york way that you know when you are when you manage to harness your alienation and convert it into something compelling and something uh commodifiable suddenly there's uh there's all kinds of aftershocks and a lot of imitation mm. and so you know obviously i didn't invent anything there's been street photography as long as there's been cameras and streets but um i have noticed that there is undeniably a giant surge of of people on the street with cameras and it's you can't go anywhere anymore without uh being corralled on the corner with a a gang of photographers so there's that and then in terms of of the city changing um you know it's a funny time to talk about it which i've been saying for about 
I guess, three years now because COVID did such a number on perception of time, uh, awareness of surroundings, all that. And, you know, I spend, I, I spend a, a decent amount of, of conscious energy trying to remember how things were before. Um, and it's very hard to really remember. And I have, you know, exhaustive piles of, of proof of the years before, but I really, in terms of like density and energy, you know, my perception that I don't trust is that, you know, the city's got more kind of nervous energy than I remember it ever having. Interesting. Well, you, know, you would have moved 20 years ago, right? You would have come in like not immediately post 9-11, but like close enough for that to still be kind of in the air, right? Sure. Yeah. So more nervous energy than like that, that kind of period of time? Yeah. Huh. I don't know. I, I get the feeling that I think as anybody who moves to New York does, that I, that I just missed that. Mm-hmm. You know, I hear I hear tales of that kind of golden moment right in the ashes of that disaster um, where just like new communities and new ways of doing everything were popping up. Um, but I feel like the disruptor that I came in with much more so than that 9-11 energy was, you know, it was kind of like the brink of the the new Internet world. Sure. Like when I got here, there there weren't iPhones. There wasn't even GPS on a phone. <clears throat> I walked around with the, the village voice under my arm so I'd know what to do. Uh, <laughs> I spent the whole day getting lost because I didn't know where anything was. And I had to constantly be like cross-referencing 15 different things. I would carry around a little notebook like a psychopath and keep little notes about bars that I read about, like notes <laughs> about what set apart. Um, <clears throat> and so you know, it was an interesting time. I'm I'm sure there was much more of that that 9/11 energy than than I had access to. Hmm. Um, you know, you see evidence of those scenes now of kind of dash snow world and that meet me in the bathroom action. Um, and although I was in some of those rooms, I was so isolated in my newness that I couldn't really access the feeling of it. Um, I think a much more defining shift was that suddenly, you know, social media came in, the phone, you know, became this, the phone gained superpowers. Um, and I guess, you know, I showed up here as any good 23 year old would thinking that proximity to the music business was the most important thing in the world that, you know, any way that I could get involved in this sort of, post strokes energy moment like the last hurrah of of that version of the lower east side um you know that was all i needed and and i feel like one of the most catastrophic changes of that early internet moment was in the music world um so that was a dramatic change i mean i'm sure there are people who were 23 consume music as ambitiously and voraciously as i and the people i knew then did but it just seems like such a different 
world of, I don't know, of access. Right. We couldn't possibly feel the same. So many of the things you just said tie into our topic today, uh, which is the album New York by Lou Reed from 1989. And I think that it's a record that feels like it kind of could have been written about anything you were just saying about kind of right now. There's something about it that feels like when you listen to it, you wonder like, was the, was the world always ending? Does it, has it always, has it felt like this since then? Perpetual question. This It's a pre a pre nine 11 record that kind of sounds like nine 11 just happened. Yeah. And a lot of echoes of, of 2020 too. Sure. Yeah. Well, AIDS taking the place of COVID in that yeah. context, um, obviously not, a equal comparison, but, um, I think that there was an atmosphere to that fear that, is definitely a part of the content of the album. Also, I think a sense of trying to cling to certain things that are uh, at least seemingly eternal and reliable. Um, in this case, the way the record sounds, I think, is so uh, clearly a, a, sh- a shift away from the gimmicks of uh, the music at the time, a lot of the contemporaneous stuff. And it's a record that I think is rightfully understood to be one of Lou Reed's best for that reason. Um, I think that he rightly gravitated toward these things that were durable enough to take on the big issues um, of the moment. And it's a record that continues to feel useful. Like It's like a utilitarian record about dealing with the world mm. and with New York City. And I think uh, aging in New York City, Mm. I mean, it's definitely uh, the temptation to project is massive. He really gives you a a lot to to hook into in your own life. But yeah, it feels super universal. Yeah, what's what's so exciting about the record to me or so fulfilling, maybe is the best way to phrase it, is, um, you know, us in the show having, you know, been with Lou every step of the way up until now, uh, you know, t- you know, just drilling into each and every song as as close as we can, uh, and seeing some, you know, some of the through lines that he'd been writing about from the very earliest days in the Velvets. You know, Candy says, then into Walk on the Wild Side, uh, and now, uh, you know, and then obviously like his whole relationship with Rachel, and now we're kind of seeing where he's revisiting this whole world at the end of the 80s, 1989, as this whole kind of colossus is grinding to a halt and really, like, collapsing under its weight, you know, in the face of the AIDS crisis. Um, you know, it's it's a song like Halloween Parade, you know, like, doesn't bear a whole lot of resemblance to Walk on the Wild Side superficially, but it's the same guy with his same viewpoint on this same kind of culture just separated by almost 20 years at this point. So it's a really, um, I mean, he, he himself was very conscious of calling this record like it, it's ba- it should be a book. He even says on the back, it's meant to be listened to in one 58-minute sitting as though it were a book or a movie. Do you have much, uh, I mean, obviously you do, uh, just your own personal history with Lou, Daniel, uh, you know, kind of coming into the world of the, you know, Strokes, Interpol, uh, meet me in the bathroom kind of stuff, all of which was very much 
kind of aping the yeah. 60s, 70s Lou Reed? Just so like, is that kind of where, where it came from? In my relationship with Lou Reed? No. Yeah. Uh, no. It, it was it majorly predated all of that. Oh, wow. Okay. I will never forget my first, my introduction to Lou Reed was the, the Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, was it the 30th anniversary concert? Foot of, Foot of pride. pride, baby. All right. You're yeah. speaking our language. Oh, oh, oh. Ain't no coming back, you know. Put a put a put a pride and not a coming back. Where at MSG, it sounds yep. like they're booing, but they're saying Lou. Lou. Yeah, my fir <laughs> the first thing I knew about Lou Reed was that they're not booing, they're saying Lou. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, and he was such a misfit in that crowd that I was really struck by him. Um, and then, you know, my dad had New York and Magic and Loss on mm. cassette in the minivan. Um, but I didn't old, have. Old yeah, he, he was ambitious. <laughs> um, I didn't really have much of a musical impression until another big formative unforgettable moment i was being scouted for a jewish youth group um which you know the, are, are you jewish those kids I'm, no not those no i was in milwaukee <laughs> at that point we didn't have that that kind of okay uh ambitious crew but uh no i was it was the kind of thing where they'd like take you to a baseball game and be like isn't it great hanging out with all these jewish kids um <laughs> like american birthright <laughs> yeah totally it was like the the lead up to birthright and you know they never they never captured my heart but on the ride to the baseball game this absolute weirdo played the the reunion concert in the car and i was like what is this wow the 93 yeah. Velvet Underground yeah. reunion show. And it yeah. was, it was yeah. 93, which I oh, know so just... because after I heard that, I went home and gathered up my bar mitzvah gift certificates for the record store, went straight to the mall and got the reunion concert double CD, and I got uh, Bleach by Nirvana. Very sick. And, wow. And felt so just like radicalized as <laughs> as a little boy in like a wholesome private Jewish school world. <laughs> I heard shiny, shiny boots of leather and I was like, that is the most sinister sound I've ever heard in my life. And I like need to rearrange my life around it. Yes. Um, and and I did. And by the time I got here. You know, I don't think I was necessarily savvy enough at that moment to connect the scene here to the obvious Lou Reed precedent. But um, I did walk around as often as I could in a T-shirt with a big banana on it uh, before they were selling it at Uniqlo <laughs> and and felt like, you know, I was flying my flag looking for my people. You know, I encountered him a few times. Lou, did you take his photo? I did take his photo. Um, I saw him play a few times and got to take his photo that way. But when I first quit my writing life, I worked as an assistant for this still life photographer. And we got to be good buddies. I was really bad as an assistant because he was a very technical guy. But, uh, you know, like months after he had decided, like, you, we can't keep the charade going anymore. You're not helping me. He hit me up. He was like, hey. I've got a job tomorrow. I'm shooting Lou Reed. You got to come. I was like, yes. And it was, you know, it was when he was very 
obviously not going to be around much longer. Like I think he died mm. weeks after, but he was shooting this campaign for some sunglass company. Oh, the vampire tooth one. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I was wow. in the room for that, like sneaking pictures on my phone of him chugging green juice. And then like little by little building up the audacity to just like basically stand between my boss and Lou with my own little stupid point and shoot camera and just take pictures until Lou stopped and was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and my boss said, uh, that's my, my worst assistant, but he's my favorite assistant. And then he was dead. Jesus. But it was miraculous that I got to be in the room with him. He was incredible. Well, should we uh, talk about the record? Yes. Lots to talk about. (laughs) Romeo and Juliet. Pretty good. The recent uh, exhibition at the New York Public Library, which we've covered and uh, which both of us missed stupidly, three of us missed, was named. Uh, did you go? No, I missed it too. We all missed it. Uh, it takes its name from some of the great lyrics in this song. The first ones, "Caught Between the Twisted Stars." That's just the first of a series of great lyrics in a song that just has nothing but those and then ends one of his best pocket novellas so great yeah you're gonna be able to say that about virtually every song on this record one of his best the thing that is so arresting to me also on this is just the way that it sounds again like kind of tracing the journey that he's been on through the 80s and this being 89 after a three-year break mistrial having been the the record immediately previous to this which was a good record as far as we're concerned but not super fondly remembered uh, critically speaking at least like this just sounds like this sounds like fucking rock and roll man and he even says on the back on his little liner notes thing uh you can't beat two guitars bass drum and, you know, this song, every song on this record, but this song right off the bat is, is the testament to that fact. Well, I've noticed in my, my looping while I walk the past few days that before he even gets to that unbelievable flurry of lyrics, that first bar, it's like you start in the middle of a bar. Yeah, it's like the tape, exactly, just like it, cutting right in. Yeah, it's like he's, he's halfway through a phrase and it's like you're you're jumping into something that's already underway. And I put it on today and it was like x-ray glasses. The first thing I saw when the that first phrase hit, a kid walked by me with a shirt on that said born to fuck. Nice. <laughs> yes, let's fucking go. Caught between the twisted stars, the plotted lines, the faulty map that brought Columbus to New York. Betwixt between the east and west, he calls on her wearing a leather vest, the earth squeals and shudders to a halt. A diamond crucifix in his ear is used to help word off the fear that he has left his soul in someone's rented car. Inside his pants he hides a mop to clean the mess that he has dropped into the life of lightsome Juliet Bell. And Romeo wanted Juliet And Juliet wanted Romeo And Romeo wanted Juliet 
Juliet wanted Romeo. Romeo Rodriguez squares his shoulders and curses Jesus runs a There's a physicality to it when that record starts. I like feel my shoulders come up and my chin goes down, my eyes come up, and I get this like sinister monster feeling yeah. absolutely yeah it's an intense kind of listen i've been doing like a little more like working out recently and like lifting weights and sure. listening to this record in particular and it's just like fucking like it gets me going man yeah just has such a this command of language that it's just overwhelming if there was any doubt about his ability at this point you know from people who hated his record before it it's a way to shut any of those people up. Mm-hmm. It's everything everyone always wanted Lou Reed to be and believed that he could be. And there were always these false starts and like weird records with flubs and shitty promotion. And, you know, in the 70s, he was, you know, smacked out for too long. And here, finally, like no bones about it from the jump, track one to track 14, top to bottom. This dude is just in complete command musically, lyrically, attitudinally, if that's a word. It's all locked in together. I feel like there's even a thread to those so-called kind of missteps where, you know, again, I don't want to project a New York experience, but I feel like a guy who manages, like I said before, to convert his alienation into this sort of mainstream appreciation, you know, the instinct when you show yourself like that and the world says, oh, yeah, come on in. You're one of us now. Like, right. Fuck you, I'm not one of you. <laughs> it feels like the retort, it like like he was just challenged, and this is what he has to say. There's five Lou Reeds on the cover of, of Lou Reeds New York. <laughs> fully just sounds like there's five Lou Reeds here. You're, you're getting nothing but Lou on Lou on Lou. But then also it's all these different characters. Yeah. Where the temptation is to attribute all of these actions and emotions to him but but a lot of the time he's giving them to somebody else there's a lot of uh songs where lou read the lou reed character right that we all we all know and love and we have all come to know and love over the course of the preceding records like he he's kind of sucked a lot of himself out of this record um and it's still directly very clearly informed by his viewpoint and his take on things but more objective for lack of a better term i think in, in writing about some of his subjects here This episode of Jokerman Podcast is presented by DistroKid. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to distribute their music and get it into all of the places it needs to go. Your Spotify's, your Apple Music's, your YouTube's, your TikTok's, your Tidal's, your Instagram's, and any other streaming service of note. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy. With unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100%, that's right, 100, all of them, folks, of their royalties and earnings. DistroKid comes with tons of great features, including Mixia, which allows DistroKid users to put the finishing touches on their tracks in just minutes, getting a customizable and polished end result that anyone can feel confident in before sharing it with the world. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store to download it today. It's it's kind of like a community uh, of Lou Reed's. And I think that that's a way to interpret the record, that it, it feels like 
Lou Reed is saying what it means to be a New Yorker on a spiritual level. Yeah. It's not like about New York City per se. It's about what do people talk about? What do people mean when they say like New York attitude? Like you just said, Ian, it's less autobiographical. It, it, it seems that this is the result of his attention being turned outward in a more full way. Mm-hmm. Something we talked about a lot when we were talking about Home of the Brave, this song that really spins out and you see Lou kind of like compassionately widening his gaze to all these characters and this tapestry of people. And I think that this is the first time we're really seeing that taken as far as he can with the whole record. Well, and speaking of uh, big cast of characters, doesn't get any bigger than uh, Halloween Parade. Greta Garbo, Alfred Hitchcock, Cinderella, Southern Queen acting loud and mean. It's all, all your favorites. There's a downtown fairy singing out proud Mary as she cruises Christopher Street. And some southern queen is acting loud and mean where the docks and the badlands meet. This Halloween is something to be sure of. Especially to be here without you. There's a Greta Garbo and an Alfred Hitchcock and some black Jamaican stud. There's five Cinderella's and some leather drags I almost fell into my mug. There's a Crawford Davis and a tacky Cary Grant. And some homeboys looking for trouble down here from the Bronx. Song about the Halloween parade, and really a song about AIDS. Right. A song about the absence of, of characters. It feels like it has some weird relationship to Desolation Row or something. It, like yeah, it of. is kind of like a real life Desolation Row. Like this is like if Desolation Row is clearly like a fairy tale, a storybook kind of thing. The, like if that were real, it would be Christopher Street with these people marching down uh, in the Halloween parade, and clearly many of them having a really hard time, or being not there. It's a list of all these people in costume, and uh, there's this kind of paradoxical tone to the song that's sort of like yeah i'm having fun but there's not time to really sit down and despair it's just oh yeah so and so is not here this year and so and so isn't here this year and they're not here well and you put it in the context of this iconic celebrated new york event where the people who are left whether they're invested or not are all in costume living their picturesque new york lives uh and you know having the celebration that he says it's not time to have um and there it does feel like there's this sort of sarcastic address of the hypocrisy and of the just like life goes on right you were talking about walk on the wild side and and a lot of stuff on transformer I, i think has a relationship to what we have here because in the song seeing all these people in costume for one day of the year. And he's reminded of all these people who took wearing outfits and dressing up to this place that was much more profound and was part of their real identity on a spiritual level. And those are the kinds of people who are missing. Holly came from Miami, Philly. Hitchhiked way across the USA. 
talked to eyebrows along the way, then he shaved his legs, honey, he was a sheep, he said, you just see all these people having their little moment of playfulness in the shadow of these kind of giants of creating oneself. I feel like it, it revisits a lot of the themes from Transformer, um, but without a lot of the romance and almost kind of like corny, glammy sheen that you get on that record. Obviously, the sound of this record is just really straight and dry, and it's not dressed up at all. And I think the attitude, like the kind of approach that he takes, it seems to sort of reflect, I think, kind of the, the attitude that he's writing about in the characters here. You know, these people who are, in spite of it all, doing their best to muddle through and being hit with this tidal wave of what appeared at this time to be an extinction event, yeah. and, and yet are still making it through, still dressed up like a tacky Cary Grant. And that see you next year at the Halloween parade, you know, that last, that last line can, you know, you can read that one of two different ways. One way being like... You know, see you next year, you know, if you make it, uh, you know, which it's very possible that you or I won't. Or it could be, you know, this kind of message of resolution saying like, no, I will see you next year. It's all fucked up, but I will be here again a year from now. In the back of my mind, I was afraid it might be true. In the back of my mind, I was afraid that they meant you. The Halloween Parade At the Halloween Parade At the Halloween Parade See you next year at the Halloween Parade It's a beautiful song. Um, and so is... Dirty Boulevard. What a trio to start this record off with, man. Like yeah, fucking Romeo and Juliet into Halloween Parade into Dirty Boulevard. There might not be a stronger three song sequence in the man's career. It's a very, uh, there's a very strong like visual language, I think, to the whole record, really. But this song is one of the greatest examples of that because you get that line. Small kid stands by the Lincoln Tunnel. He's selling plastic roses for a buck. The traffic's backed up to 39th Street. Like specific, like he's he's at specific down to the street to which the traffic is backed up. Um, and then at the same time, opera at Lincoln Center. Movie stars arrive by limousine. Klieg lights shoot up over the skyline of Manhattan, but the lights are out on the mean streets. It's such a um, cinematic record. Uh, you can just picture all of this shit in your mind's eye. Uh, this is also the first of multiple uh, statue of bigotry drops on this record which i just fucking yeah. crack a grin every time i hear it i didn't realize till later that it ha- comes up several times so he says it at least three times had it in each song and was like well sure no, it's fine it's so good give me your hungry you're tired you're poor i'll piss on them that's what the statue of bigotry says your poor huddled masses let's club them to death and get it over with and just dump them on the boulevard that classic character, the statue of bigotry. <laughs> I think with Dirty Boulevard, there's this sense of doom and the sense of possibility. Um, the book on magic, there's that glimmer of some kind of hope there in a garbage can. A small kid stands by the Lincoln Tunnel. He's selling plastic roses for a buck. The traffic's backed up to 39th Street. TV whores are calling the cops out for a suck. And back at the wheelchair, 
Pedro sits there dreaming. He's found a book on magic in a garbage can. He looks at the pictures and stares up at the cracked ceiling. At the count of three, he says, I hope I can disappear and fly, fly away from this dirty boulevard. I want to fly, yeah. From the dirty boulevard, I want to fly. From the dirty boulevard, I want to fly, 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 fly. From the dirty boulevard, I want to fly away. I want to fly. Fly, fly away, yeah. I want to fly. Fly, fly away. Endless Cycle, I think, is just going deeper into like the actual conditions, sort of the, the karma of what what causes all of this shit. Um, and I, I think it's definitely something that comes up again and again on the record. How do you break out of this? How does one person, and is there a way that a group of people can do it? Can we all break that chain? And this is something about how Mostly you can't. Yeah. And I didn't realize until I was, I was reading a little bit from his, uh, the, the biography by Anthony Curtis, there is no drum track on this, this song. It's actually just a metronome that the yes, producer, yeah. Fred Mayer, uh, who had been working with Lou, I think that first popped up on uh, Legendary Hearts or New Sensations, one of the two, um, uh, just a metronome. Uh, that's the only kind of thing that you get. And it, it kind of blends into the background when you're listening to it initially, at least for me, it, it did. Um, or, you know, not listening to it initially, but listening to it without purpose. Uh, but then once you hear it, it's just like, it's unmistakable. Uh, so much of this record sounds so stripped down. You know, it's it's like, it's a really kind of back to basics it, as um, as florid and vivid as so much of his writing is, you know, uh, lyrically speaking on this record. Musically, it is as simple and, and straightforward. Two guitars, bass, and drum, like he says. Uh, as you really get anywhere in the career, I think, anything before it or after it from this point. The man, if he marries, will batter his child and have endless excuses. The woman, sadly, will do much the same, thinking that it's right and it's proper. Better than the mommy or the daddy did. Better than the childhood they suffered The truth is they're happier when they're in pain In fact, that's why they got married You have like the genius of using a metronome as the percussion into the song. There is no time. Can't help but think that that's intentional. Oh yeah, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, a song about the endless cycle of time, and then this song, which just kind of kicks one in the ass. 
meant to be like a slap in the face or cold splash of water. Honestly, kind of sounds like a forerunner to Lulu to me. Like not exactly like Lulu, but those really like heavy, kind of like corny butt rock guitars. Like I feel like there's a connection there somewhere. Well, the chugging like Metallica like exactly, tone of them. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think this song is uh, one that I personally had some weird mixed feelings about because it's like brings to mind the last time I felt galvanized politically. And now, you know, that being the Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, very campaign. long time ago. <laughs> and it's just like uh, talking about remember how things were before, Daniel. <laughs> I know. But I do think there's something transcendent about it, whether he did or not, in that. I don't know. I mean, there is no time taken literally. You know, it's a very New York sentiment. It's a very political sentiment. But uh, I also think that the sentiment that that there is no time, that the time doesn't exist, that there's uh, what's the there's a second repeated timeline that uh, under pressure I can't think of. This is no this is this is the time. And th- and then at the end he gets to this is the time. This is yeah. the time yeah. because there is no time. Yeah, right. there is. There's never a right moment. You know, the the right moment is just the current moment, right. and that's what it's got to be. If not now, when? Kind of restate. Yeah, but also I think it is a very. I mean, in my experience, a very New York phenomenon that time ceases to exist. You are like in this sort of fantasy construction of yourself in this world that. Uh, despite that enforces constant uh, interfacing with unpleasant reality. And time is sort of this insult that you pretend isn't there. (laughs) Hmm. There's something really profound about taking that idea of like fast paced New York. I want it now, need it now. Like let's like cut to the chase uh, and sort of transposing that onto like a huge canvas of like just the world looking around in a bigger way of being like well if this is how we think in new york then like we what does it mean to put that attitude toward like the how fucked up the world is right now yeah like like just asking people who have the ability to do something about it get on our level it's like a certain bob dylan song and in a city with such an appetite for itself that is so admitted or not legacy minded, history minded. Sure. You know, everybody's kind of playing to the, the photograph at the end of the shining. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like there is no time where we've all always been here. We all are here to declare ourselves part of the story. Sure. I also love that in the midst of just like densely packed lines, he tells us that this is not a time for circumlocution. <laughs> yeah. But that feels like the most uh, like self-defeating phrase. This is no time for circumlocution. Like then why even say that uh, word? He's got some big words that he he just needs to throw in every once in a while. Yeah. Make it clear that he went to college. He, he right. studied with Delmore Schwartz. He knows his words. I studied with Delmore Schwartz. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> um, but it, he it really resonates with with the kind of COVID uh, and yeah, yeah, and, and you know, police anti police uprising moment of the past few years. Um, I think that was a sentiment that everybody, you know, despite their elevated 
coastal culture right was like no fuck all of that that's not what it's about right now and i can say that there's no time for circumlocution which sounds ridiculous because i have that vocabulary on hand but also like i'm i'm aware enough that it's no time for my bullshit which this is this is no time for celebration this is no time for shaking hands this is no time for backslapping this is no time for marching bands this is no time for optimism this is no time for endless thought this is no time for my country right along remember what that brought there is no time there is no time there is no time there is no time this is no time for congratulations this is no time to turn your back this is no time for circumlocution this is no time for learned speech this is no time to count your blessings sure this is no time for private yeah there, there's such a variety of ways to read that phrase there is no time it's what makes it such a strong choice like it can be like we don't have time for this and it can mean time is not a concept that really is has any weight um and i think it's the song is just using it all kinds of ways uh every way it can to get the message out that like you can't be complacent i think it's just a song really that it's like don't get too comfortable uh there's not an excuse to get too comfortable I think you're right that it is a transcendent quality where it's like, no, I, I don't have to listen to this and then feel sad about Bernie Sanders <laughs> not winning. I, I can listen to this and feel engaged about anything. Yeah. We got Joe, man. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, Joe. This is, uh, you know, it, it, we got to say at some point, uh, we'll get a couple other op- opportunities to talk about it later on in the record, but this is maybe Lou's most overtly political record. And clearly the instant, like the incident in his career where he decides, like, I have things to say about politics, even though in this song, he literally says, this is no time for political speech and goes on to deliver quite a bit of political speech on this record. Um, it's a humanist message, I think, more than a political one um, that really drives the record. I don't know. I mean, he's he's like very dialed into like specific controversies of like the mid to late eighties. You know, we'll get to it, like with the whole Jesse Jackson thing. But like, he's he's yeah, very yeah, much yeah. like a MSNBC brain on this record, uh, which but it's because they piss him off. Like he's just like pissed off at certain attitudes. I think more than he is like. It, it ends up sounding topical, but uh, it's very. T- it <laughs> but <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get there. Yeah, uh, but this is this one really works, I think, uh, and and it's really powerful. All the more powerful, I think, because it relies just on this super simple, straightforward phrase from the beginning to the end. Right, there is no time. This is the time. Uh, in the midst of this record, that is so novelistic and uh, and and highfalutin, you know, you could even say at certain points, um, you know, very consciously aware of itself as a, a literary work, um, just returning to this repeatable uh, anthemic phrase is is a really powerful choice. Then uh, I think it kind of glides seamlessly into the next song, um, which one of the greatest songs ever. One of the, yeah, one of, one of his very best. And I think it's perfect to come after There Is No Time because Last Great American Whale feels like 
it has nothing to do with real history uh, exactly. It, it's kind of a dream vision of history and of the present and the future in the same way that something like Bob Dylan's 115th Dream or whatever is. like where It's these kinds of... Uh, You're picking up on the whale connection. <laughs> well, I, I don't just mean that. I, but the, like, There's a bazooka and there's like Native American tribesmen in the same song. And somehow it all comes together. One song on the record that really clearly does not seem to be like taking place in the streets of New York or or at least like kind of in the suburbs of New York, because there's a couple of those, too. Like this really is like, you know, it kind of reminds me of the heroine on um, on Blue Mask, right, which is like Mm -hmm. the one sort of like weird storybook uh, 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 parable, you know, song in the midst of this record that is full of just pain and fury and real blood. Um, I, I never can listen to this song without getting chills down my spine. They say he didn't have an enemy. This was a greatness to behold. He was the last surviving progeny, the last one on the side of the world. Measured a half mile from tip to tail, silver and black, with powerful fins. They say he could split a mountain in two. That's how he got the Grand Canyon. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Last great American whale. Great American Whale. What do you think the last Great American Whale represents? Well, you know, honestly, I I struggled with it, uh, and it I think for one thing, it it asks you to struggle with that, um, because well, and you know, we're so removed from that time now. I think it's even harder to to put a name on it. Mm. Um. I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I mean, it it feels like uh, this sort of like last potential for vengeful justice uh, on the world that has turned against itself. Um, you know that could that could right all of the misdeeds of of the culture, and then you know it still meets the bazooka in the end, even after it washes away all the badness. Americans don't care much for beauty. No. Yeah, the uh, the denouement in this song, those last three verses are just like unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, shit in a river, dump battery acid in a stream. They'll watch dead rats wash up on the beach and complain if they can't swim. That is just the most poetic thing that I can imagine. And it is told in just dead, simple, straight vernacular uh, that anyone in the world can understand. You can really intellectualize it, or you can just listen to them and say, hey, they, they will shit in a river, they will dump battery acid in a stream, and they will watch dead rats wash up on a beach and complain if they can't swim. That That's, damn, that's right. Yep, stays right. It's definitely elegiac of some kind of, something about like, uh, like we're always feeling like the last bit of dignity is being stripped away uh, at any given time, and it there's kind of an eternal feeling of that i think it always feels like well there goes everything like things are really going to shit now and the last great american whale is maybe something like 
that thing that is always being threatened by the worst of us. Uh, mm-hmm. This thing that we kind of hope exists, that there's some kind of purity or dignity in America. And it always seems to be under attack by an asshole. Yeah. Local yokel member of the NRA. (laughs) (laughs) But he lives forever in this song until he gets exploded or whatever. That's right. I should also mention just musically to uh, return to that uh, briefly, our, uh, our very favorite rock and roll drummer makes her first appearance on this track, Maureen Motucker. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one of two appearances on this record, and you can really hear it, I think, when you listen back to it. Just, it's beautiful. Soulful. The way it ends, too, is haunting. There's just kind of this metallic creak. It, the, the song just kind of stops, and there's just sort of a cold void not anywhere else on the album. And it, it does give it sort of this dream sequence quality. He does a great job of, uh, you know, presenting it uh, with all the drama uh, and chutzpah that it, uh, it deserves. What about this tidbit that my friend Wikipedia told me, that that last line is a quote from John Mellencamp? That's right, yeah. That about. My, my I want to run that Donald. by the experts. Yeah, that's uh, that is the the apocryphal story. Lou and Mellencamp had this friendship at this moment in time, um, and huh. uh, which seems sort of weird, uh, you know, in, in in hindsight. But apparently, you know, they both just kind of like they were both involved in like farm aid and stuff like that uh, at the time. And then very shortly after this, actually, it fell apart because uh, there's the great passage in the De Curtis book again. Uh, Mellencamp booked um, uh, Guns and Roses to play the 1990 edition of Farm Aid or something like that, one of those uh, festivals around that time. And uh, Guns N' Roses had that song, I don't even remember the name of it, but it's like the most heinous, racist, homophobic shit you can, you can possibly imagine, just the lyrics. Immigrants and faggots, they make no sense to me. They come to our country and think they'll do as they please. Some fucking disease. They talk so many goddamn ways. It's all Greek to me. It's basically it's like it's like a Randy Newman sort of satire song, but if but it apparently is serious. Exactly. <laughs> and um, Lou, to his credit, went up to him and was just like, "Fuck this, fuck them." Yeah, and then I think Mellencamp was like. You know, they are the biggest band, and like, why are you Mr. PC all of a sudden? Didn't you write a song called Heroin? And then he's just, (laughs) he just walked out. Yeah. That's the end of that conversation. Yeah, he should have said something about, didn't you write I Want to Be Black, if he was really trying (laughs) to make um, a point against Lou. Um, But I think he would have walked out anyway. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Let's create American way. This concludes Side A of our episode on New York by Lou Reed with Daniel Arnold. Tune in next time for Side B on Jokerman. Well, Americans don't care for much of anything. Land and water the least. And animal life is low on the totem pole. With human life not worth more than infected yeast. 
Americans don't care too much for beauty. They'll shit in a river, dump battery acid in a stream. They'll watch dead rats wash up on the beach. Complain if they can't swim. They say things are done for the majority. Don't believe half of what you see, none of what you hear. It's like what my painter friend Donald said to me. Stick a fork in their ass and turn them over, they're done. <laughs>